You're listening to the Beyond the States podcast with Jen Vimont. Did you know that you can go to Europe and get your entire degree taught in English for less than one year of tuition at many American schools? Jen will take you on a deep dive into the many benefits and options around English-taught higher education in Europe, helping to make the possibility less foreign. So today we're going to talk to the author of one of my very favorite books. It's called Excellent Sheep. And you're going to hear us talk about so much I can touch on here. We talk about the effect the crazy U.S. admissions process has on kids after graduation. We talk about the trouble they have identifying their passions and and just so much more. But one of the things I've been thinking about a lot since our conversation is the importance of students knowing the answer to what is college for for you? So if you listen to our last episode, you know that my daughter Ellie is is having a lot of trouble with this question right now, which is leading to some uncertainty about what she'll do next year. Uh, Sam had a pretty clear idea of it. He knew that he wanted to be treated like an adult with independence. He knew he wanted to be around a diverse group of people. He wanted to be able to travel and have a curriculum focused on his interest areas. I was certainly on board with this. We were on the same page. And the school he went to his first year, Leiden, fit all of this as well. But what he hadn't accounted for, which he didn't know, was number one, how much he would hate economics, and also his desire for more practical information rather than the theory-focused. So since that was out of whack, it, it didn't end up being a good fit for him. And honestly, he moved to a second school because he liked how the Netherlands fit many of the aspects of what college is for him and didn't really seek to find one that incorporated all of it. It didn't have the curriculum focused on his interest areas like the first school did. So without it meeting all of his needs, it also wouldn't be a good fit. So third time's a charm. He's finally at a place that meets all of his criteria, but his journey showed me the importance of really knowing the answer to this question and pursuing a place that meets all of these needs. So certainly, you know, budget and area of study are an important part of the equation, But there's so much more than that. So luckily, the school where he is, uh, AAU, they do accept credit transfer. So it's not like the two years were wasted. And he'll end up graduating after four years total. And honestly, I don't see the year of lost credits as a waste since they taught him so much and tuition was affordable. So, you know, it didn't feel like, oh, we spent all that just for some insight. You know, it was valuable experience. So I saw a lot of students starting to attend AAU this year, where Sam is. Part of the reason they had this huge influx in American students is due to the popular TikTok account of Liza. She was one of our first Beyond the States members and recently graduated from the school and has a TikTok account. What do you call it? TikTok page account? I don't know. I don't really understand TikTok yet, but she provides a ton of great information to students. And of course, it's based on her experiences living in Prague and going to AAU. And so I think too many people thought that since AAU is right for Liza, it'd be right for them too. However, when they got there, many of them realized this wasn't the case. And I know of a number who have left already midway through the first semester, not because there's something wrong with the school, but because there's just not the fit. I really do believe that had they answered the question, what is college for, for me, they might not have attended in the first place because there's just no one school that's right for everyone. So it's really just, it's not just a matter. I mean, this takes a good amount of insight looking at what college is for you. Maybe it's about preparing you for a profession with practical knowledge. 
Maybe it's about getting a really broad or, or flexible education. Maybe it's about starting from day one in your area of interest, like your major. Maybe it's about being around a diverse set of people, or maybe you need to have a certain number of people around you who have a similar background. Um, maybe you want to explore more of the world or be within a certain travel time to get home easily. Maybe it's about total independence, or maybe there are certain supports that you know you need in place to succeed. There's really no right or wrong answer to this. It's just a place to start exploring and questioning. It's almost like using this information to make a mission statement for yourself, which I know it's cheesy, but kind of helpful. Sam's educational mission statement might be something like, college for me is to have the independence needed to learn how to be an adult, to explore the world in the classroom and out, to have a diverse set of friends and learn about the world and international relations in a practical way that prepares me for a career. Of course, he'd never use those words or stated like that and would probably make fun of me for doing so. But he could use this insight as a student, too, to seek out experiences, academic and otherwise, that are aligned with this statement. Ellie is not even close to being able to answer this question, which is why we're thinking about a gap year. Gaining perspective and insight into her own values, her own needs and her preferences are going to help her determine where she wants to attend and will also help her intentionally craft her experiences once she starts her studies. So let's take a quick break and come back with the interview with Bill Dershowitz. Hello, my name is Tamara. I am from Florida and I'm in my first year at the Burgundy School of Business in France. And I found my university from the Beyond the States database and membership. I've always been interested in studying abroad or foreign exchange programs, but I always felt like I never had that opportunity as it was always perceived to be unaffordable. No one I knew or any of my educational advisors understood this process and lacked knowledge on how to make this a possibility. Through my Beyond the States membership, I learned everything I could about how to study abroad and was actually provided resources and connections to make this process achievable. I found Beyond the States through a TikTok video and was convinced to invest in the monthly membership plan, and that decision alone changed my life. Through the Q&As, monthly university and country updates, and the Facebook group chat, I've not only been able to get this opportunity to study abroad, but also make some amazing friends who are studying in Europe as well. If you're even slightly interested in studying abroad, I suggest you check out Beyond the States to get started. The free blogs and interest quiz will be enough to make you desire this opportunity, and the database access will leave you with no regrets. Check the show notes for details in the link or go to the services page on beyondthestates.com. So today we are talking to William Derezowitz. He's a former Yale English professor. He is an essayist, a literary critic, and author of A Jane Austen Education, as well as his new book, which is The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech, and one of my very favorite books, the New York Times bestseller, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. Bill, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So I, I mentioned to you before, I really, really love the book Excellent Sheep. Uh, when I first read it, when it first came out, and I just reread it in preparation for this interview and loved it just as much and was finding myself flagging and highlighting new pages that struck me in ways uh, different than when I initially read it. So um, can you explain a little bit about what you mean by the phrase excellent sheep? Sure. That's a great way to start, a great way to start explaining what the book is about. And I should say that it's a phrase that came from one of my students at Yale in a moment of kind of 
startled uh, collective self-recognition. She said, uh, are we all just excellent sheep? Students who get into selective colleges are certainly excellent in the sense, not necessarily that they've learned a lot or that they're capable of self-educating or that they're curious or that they have a lot of the thinking abilities that even maybe uh, employers will want, but that they've been really good at quote unquote demonstrating excellence by jumping through all the hoops and checking all the boxes, you know, acing their, their courses, yes, but what does that mean now to get an A in a course, especially in a gauge of great inflation, even in high school? Doing all the extracurriculars, but again, I mean, it's become such a ridiculous arms race of extracurriculars that what does that mean? I'm sure we'll talk about that mm -hmm. more. And as a result of this excellence that they have been, I would say, forced to, to demonstrate growing up in their high-achieving, high-pressure, middle-class, upper-middle-class communities, um, always doing what the grown-ups want them to do, always jumping through the next hoop successfully, never having time to think about what they want, what they're good at, what they care about, never having time really to think. <laughs> I mean... So relentless are the demands, so incessant are they, that they also become sheep in the sense that they don't know how to choose a life for themselves. And I saw this with my students at Yale, and I've uh, heard stories from literally hundreds, if not thousands of students over the many years, the years, many years now that I've been writing about this. And it's, it's really sad. Yeah. And wow, there's so many follow-up questions I have just based on that answer. And they're so unattainable, these standards that they're trying to achieve. Because even if you have a perfect SAT score, there's going to be somebody else who has more extracurriculars than you. If it's to be the best, there's always somebody who's better in some category. The fact that there's always, in theory, somebody better is part of the psychological profile, right. which ends up being this kind of cycle of grandiosity and depression as psychologists have described it. Like you get an A, you think you're the greatest person in the world. You get an A minus or a 98 and you think you're worthless. And this is a very pernicious psychological cycle that people enter into and sometimes never get out of. And in that sense, what you're saying I, that you never, you're, you know, there's a, however well you do, you never think you're doing well enough, but it certainly is the case that there, there's some number of students. It's a very small number of students who would, you know, who sort of get the brass ring, the golden dozen colleges, but at what cost? Right. At what cost? And, and you put it really wonderfully in your book. I, I want to quote this because I, I just, I've quoted it a lot and I'll just continue doing so. You talk about how the purpose of life becomes the accumulation of gold stars, hence the relentless extracurricular busyness, the neglect of learning is an end in itself, the inability to imagine doing something that you can't put on your resume, hence the constant sense of competition. I just love that. Yeah. What effect do you see this having on kids during high school, when they get into college, and potentially even afterwards? Yeah, I mean, just to focus on this inability to engage in learning for its own sake. I mean, I've visited now many high schools, spoke at many high schools, and I've had teachers tell me, and high school teachers tend to be really, especially at these private schools uh, or well-resourced public schools, they're often very com committed, compassionate, and really smart people. And it, it just makes them so sad because, you know, a math teacher telling me about how he wants his students to love math for its own sake, to see its beauty and its elegance and its rigor. And it's just impossible to get them 
to focus on that because all they care about is their grade. They're too busy also to really kind of delve into any particular subject. Students have told me about studying in class, meaning they're studying for one class while they're in another class. Okay, this is, <laughs> right? When they get to college, I've had a professor at a, one of the top 10 liberal arts colleges tell me that her favorite student that year, a brilliant young woman, literally said to her, I don't have time for intellectual passion. I wish I did, but I just don't. So that's the piece of it. I know this, this sounds like a cliche, but it's a real thing, like not being able to figure out who you are. Like it's really, really important for not even just satisfaction in life, but if we just want to talk about success, even mm -hmm. success in life, to figure out what you care about and what you're good at. And those are the two questions that I want students to ask. What do I care about and what do I, not what do I want, wealth, status, it, prestige admissions, even make the world a better place. I think that that can be a problematic way to think about things because it can be very restrictive. What do I care about and what am I good at? And you certainly cannot answer that first question if you're only doing what the grown-ups tell you to do. And you get to college, and then there's a whole new set of expectations. You know, it's so sad to me. I've heard seniors who are about to go off to college or freshmen who just got to college tell me, oh, college is going to be different. <laughs> now that I'm in, I'm going to be able to study what I love and have fun. And it's sad because I know that they're going to find out in a few weeks that that's not true within a few weeks of getting to college, because then you start to hear about, well, you got to get an internship this summer if you want to get an internship next summer so that you can get a job after you graduate at a prestigious investment bank or a consultancy, or you have to study economics, or you have to take these classes if you want to go to law school. So students, you know, the same psychological dynamic they've already been trained in, find the next hoop and jump through it, immediately locks into place again, and once they get out of college, if they do continue on this path, it's just going to be more of the same and more of the same and more of the same. And this is how you get adults in their 40s who, first of all, feel completely burned out, feel like they're living the wrong life, feel like their job may pay them a lot, but doesn't engage them, seems meaningless. They don't know what went wrong. They wish they had studied something else in college, studied what they really wanted to study instead of what everyone was telling them to study. So the time to start dealing with this is not when you're 45 or 25 or 20, but ideally when you're still in high school. And you talk about this in your book about that you say young people aren't trained to pay attention to the things that they feel connected to. And so if there's this constant hoop jumping, they're not going to find that passion. So what can we as parents, of parents of teenagers, I have a 17-year-old, though she's pretty good about her passion areas, right? She's, but we've been working on that for a couple of years. Sure. What would you say the parents can do to help connect them to being aware of what, like you said, what they want out of life or even out of college? Yeah. Listen, I, I want to say, first of all, that I know that this is really hard for parents. And I've spoken to a lot of parent groups both in the context of high schools and outside of high schools. And parents are doing this, they're sort of sending their kids through the system because they think it's the best for them. I mean, that's the main reason. There are other maybe less good reasons, like wanting to get the window stickers to put in your car, but mainly it's because you think it's the best for your kid. And you think that if you don't do this in a very competitive economy that seems increasingly to be sorted into a relatively small number of winners and a lot of losers, 
that you're really setting your kid up for failure in life if you don't do it. I don't agree with that, but I understand that that's where parents are coming from. And I say all this because I think my first and most important recommendation is you have to think about whether you want your kid to be in this environment. Do you want them to be in this kind of high school? Do you want them to be in this kind of community? And if you're not able for one reason or another to take them out, or you think that you just, you shouldn't, then you need to take a very active role in helping them manage the pressures and expectations that come from being in that kind of environment. And you have to really mean it, right? As I say in the book, quoting the great Madeline Levine, who's written books, she's an adolescent therapist and has written books about this, like The Price of Privilege. Kids know when parents are BSing. And when they say, oh, just do your best, but they don't really mean just do your best. So you need to give kids that sort of moral and psychological support, but I also think that you need to give them time. There's a great organization that Madeline Levine and others are part of called Challenge Success, based out of uh, California, that's trying to change the culture in these schools. And they talk about PDF, which is playtime, <laughs> downtime, and family time. These are things that kids don't get, and they get less and less of as they get, you know, as they continue through K through 12. Playtime, downtime, and family time. I don't think that you need to, like, do some elaborate dance to help your kid discover their passion. Kids have passions. Even adults have passions, but especially despite that they tend to be buried under lots of cares and responsibilities. But kids have passions. Kids have curiosity. Kids are designed to go out and explore the world in their own unique ways. What they need is the chance to do it. They need playtime, downtime, and family time, which they don't get, right? All they get now is study time. I could not agree more. And it's interesting. I write a lot about the impact the different admissions process in Europe had on my family in particular. My son is 20, and we knew from the time he was going into high school that he wanted to take this alternate route. So we were able to opt out, even though he was at, we live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, mm. and the public school, even the public school is very, very. Sure. Um, a lot of academics. Yeah. 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 And, and definitely the, the culture is that of sure. students being pushed into highly selective universities. And we were able to opt out of that. And it definitely took a lot of strength because there was a counselor, you know, saying, well, shouldn't he get a perfectly fine ACT score. And they're like, shouldn't he retake it? No, he doesn't need to, you know, shouldn't he take more than the four APs? No, doesn't need to. But because of that, he was able to, you know, we had dinner as a family on weeknights. He had dinner with my father once a week and they played cards Mm. and just talked about the world. And he was able to pursue Arabic, not as a academic topic to put on his resume, but but in his free time and then went on a program in Morocco. Not, again, not for, you know, it was just fantastic. It was just, he worked at Harris Teeter, which was not a glamorous job. I don't know if you had that there. It's just our local grocery store, not glamorous, but taught him so much. Such a great learning experience. Absolutely. And none of this was anything I was doing as a parent. I wasn't like, you should work at Harris Teeter because it's going to really, you know, teach you this or that. It was just letting him, like you said, letting him find his path and not letting the pressures of the world get in the way of that path. Obviously, I haven't met your son, but I will say that when I go to colleges, high schools, sometimes even with little kids, when I meet a kid who has the kind of confidence that I'm sure your son has that comes from knowing that they can figure things out for themselves, like 
First of all, figure out what they want to do. Then figure out how to do it. The kind of richness of experience that you just described, you know, his grandfather, a regular minimum wage or low wage job that teaches you to interact with all kinds of other people, that teaches you to take responsibilities in a way that schoolwork doesn't help you do. They just, kids like that just seem sort of like more self-actualized. I think that's the best word, more self-actualized. And uh, they don't have that horrible thing that we call self-esteem. I mean, maybe they do, but but it's so different being self-actualized, being like feeling like a full real person at whatever, you know, in whatever age appropriate way that is, feels so different from so many of the kids. And I loved my students at Yale. I loved them. But so many of the kids I met there who just seemed um, shell-shocked mm-hmm. and were could only wait around to be told what to do. Right. I mean, they would come, I was the kind of professor and there aren't a lot of them who invited students to come and talk to me. So I really heard their stories and I saw them like kind of curl up in my, in the chair and like, you know, kind of almost curl up in a ball because they were so, they felt helpless. Yeah. They felt helpless. And so many of them, and because again, because we knew we didn't have to do this resume building experience, it was okay to make mistakes. And Sam has made many, 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 many mistakes. And all of those have allowed him to grow and learn something really important. And also learn that when you make mistakes, you know, he would just come to an end. Exactly. He had to go to the embassy in Amsterdam, the American embassy, nine times to get his passport renewed because of lack of attention to detail. And because, you know, we weren't over his shoulder doing it for him. And I'll tell you what. That'll teach an important lesson right there, too. <laughs> right. As opposed to you doing it for him, which Absolutely. teaches no lesson except that he's helpless. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think different people, depending on you know their community and everything else, they might have different views of what they see as a top-tier university. You know, for some, it might be their flagship state school. It might be an Ivy. It might be whatever. Many people equate selectivity rates with something being top-tier. Uh, which to me is crazy, but that's a different topic. But anyway, a lot of these parents do think, like you were just saying, that it's crucial for their kid to get into their version of the top tier university. And like we were just talking about, they feel like they have to compete or there's going to be just these dire consequences to, to the kid's future. So what can parents do to adjust these false beliefs and also to help their kids not buy into it because it's not just at home. You know, the kids are, like I said, they're getting it from the counselors, from the schools, but primarily I feel like if at home, the parents are not buying into it, it helps the kids not buy into it. So what can they do to alter those? Okay. So the first thing I would say, and I can send you a link to a story about this. There was a, a, a study that was done some years ago. The results were so startling that, the researchers redid it with a much larger sample because people had so much trouble believing it. If you look at, say, kids who graduate from Princeton versus kids who graduate from Penn State, the average Princeton graduate makes a lot more money. What they wanted to know was, what if we found kids, what if we sort of matched a kid who went to Princeton with a kid who went to Penn State, but could have gone to Princeton? Mm. Because they, we know they could have gone because they got in. And it wasn't just those two schools. It was a whole bunch of schools. So that's what they did. They looked at the data that way. And they found there was no difference, no difference in future earnings. Meaning 
let's get the first concern out of the way. Is my kid going to do decent? You know, is they're going to survive financially? It's not about the school they go to. It's about who your kid is. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is I don't think that you could just go to any school. I think there's some pretty lousy schools. I think the quality of your peers in school do matter, does Mm -hmm. matter. Mm -hmm. But I would also say you don't have to worry about finding the perfect college for you. There isn't just one perfect college. There are many schools that are going to be good schools for you. And I think that can take some of the pressure off. You don't have to get into one of the name brand schools. You don't have to get into just one perfect school that you're going to find for yourself that maybe isn't a name brand school. But yes, I think you do need to put some thought into it. And it's an incredibly intimidating, screwed up system, okay? Because we have, I think, close to 3,000 four-year colleges in this country. I'm not even counting community colleges. How do you start to make decisions on that basis? And, and a lot of the choice process can be really arbitrary. Like, uh, I know someone who went to this school, or it's a school in a neighboring state, or uh, somebody told me that his nephew had applied to the Final Four, you know, NCAA basketball Final Four. That was uh, his- I got one for you. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend whose daughter applied to a school because when they visited, she saw they had a chocolate fountain. Okay, right. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And or just they just like the vibe. Right. Well, right. I mean, I'm not against liking the vibe, but the, the whole college tour thing tends to be ridiculous. Yes. First of all, you take these stupid tours that you you know, it's they're useless, right? The actual tour that you take at the school. Also, students almost never sit in on classes. Right. I mean, that's gotta be the most important thing you do. Right. But to break down, to confront more directly the rankings mania, it helps to know, first of all, that the rankings are full of all kinds of components that many of which are sort of meaningless. Some of them have to do just with how wealthy a school is. The biggest component is reputational score, which means the ranking is completely self-reinforcing because what's reputational score based on? It's based on the rankings. So it just feeds the rankings back <laughs> into itself. Malcolm Gladwell had a great yes. piece about this in the New Yorker. It was, it was now quite a few years ago, but I think it was there that I read about that experiment where they sent a reputational rankings to law school deans and Penn State was on the list and Penn State got kind of an average score because, you know, it's Penn State. It's sort of an average school, but Penn State didn't have a law school then because people... They have a million things to do. They just quickly fill out these rankings. They're not thinking about it. So you have to defetishize the rankings. Also, I mean, the distinction between number five and number 55 is insignificant, let alone number five and number six. So, I mean, I I think there are hundreds of really good colleges in this country. And then you have to know, you know, what are you going to school for? I mean, the top, all the top ranked schools that we talk about are research universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, blah, blah, blah. Research universities are places where faculty are incentivized to spend as little time as possible on their students. Other schools like liberal arts colleges or even community colleges, which can often be a great option for the first couple of years, are places where teachers spend much more time with their students. Can you speak to that a little bit? I, I, it's, it's, you explained it very well in your book, but why is it that at research universities in the U.S., um, faculty is, is discouraged from spending much time teaching or with students? 
I should say, first of all, that unfortunately, this is a problem throughout academia. And even at liberal arts colleges, professors are part of the same system, but it's especially a problem at research universities. You have to understand, and it kills me, right? I mean, so many kids, a third of the country, whatever, goes through college. And there's so little understanding, unless you're an academic yourself, of, of how academia works. What are these institutions that you're sending your kids into? College is this black box, right? Okay. So um, research universities are in the business of research. Professors are rewarded, are hired, promoted, retained, tenured, and rewarded exclusively on the basis of their research, whatever the schools like to say. Publish or perish. The more you publish and the more prestigious your publications, the more money you're going to make, the higher status you're going to have. This is how academics are socialized from the time they enter graduate school. This is what they care about. I can tell you stories and anecdotes of people who've been literally told not to spend their time on teaching. I, I think I mentioned in the book, somebody I know who's a professor at Stanford who won a teaching award when he was, before he got tenure. And at the award ceremony, the provost leaned over to him and said, don't worry, this is really a good thing. <laughs> And he didn't even know what he was talking about. The truth is, and I think it was the head of the Carnegie Endowment who said this, winning the teaching award can often be the kiss of death at tenure time. It tells mm. your colleagues that you are not sufficiently dedicated, single-mindedly dedicated to your research. Wow. Yes, which is why most professors, especially at research universities, will not give their undergraduates the time of day. They are often seen only at the other end of a large lecture hall, and your actual contact is with graduate students or postdocs or adjuncts. Liberal arts colleges, as I said, unfortunately, it's not a perfect dichotomy because the professors they hire are part of the same system, but they are places that tend to incentivize teaching much more. They are not research universities. They don't have graduate students. They don't have graduate programs. And the same is true of community colleges. Teachers can be overworked there, but they are incentivized exclusively on the basis of their teaching. There's almost no research requirement there at all. I should say more and more families, middle-class families, have said to me that they are taking the community college option, even though, and you know, it sounds like this kind of social disgrace, for financial reasons, you know, two years of community college, and then, and then you can go on to the state flagship, or this is, you know, in California especially, that's more and more common, you know, whatever whatever the option might be. Yeah, and you can see that. I mean, especially since the first two years of universities are often gen ed requirements that are such a kind of mishmash yes. of different topics. Paying dramatically less for that could certainly make it sense. Pains me. It pains me. In my ideal world, college would be free. College right. would be free. College would be great. Kids in K through, you know, K through 12 funding would would be reallocated so that kids from lower income families would have a better chance of getting not only getting into college, but thriving in a liberal arts environment. Mm -hmm. Gen ed requirements would be taken a lot more seriously. I mean, gen ed is sort of this decayed version of the kind of core curricula that we used to have. And I think we need to go back to, even if we can change what the canon was, I think core curricular requirements are really good. But as things stand, the reality is that community college is a lot cheaper. Gen ed requirements are often a menu of really lousy classes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, you aren't necessarily losing anything by doing your first two years at a community college. Well, I think it goes back to what you just said, is students and families really figuring it out 
what is college for for me? Because, you know, there's not, and that's one thing I talk about a lot. I don't think there's one right or wrong answer. Harvard absolutely might be the right answer for one student. And community college might be for another. And, you know, Europe might be for another. And, you know, there are so many options around the world that can be great if you just know how to answer that question. You know, what do I want out of college? What what is yeah. college for? What is college for, me? for? What is college for for me? I absolutely agree. I mean, it's as things stand for so many kids, it's just an assembly line yeah. of unquestioned expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also and also because you you haven't thought that question through, you also don't know when you get to college how to navigate it in a proactive way that's going to help you get what you want. And you're again buffeted by all the basically by the campus rumor mill, the sort of peer-to-peer, you know, what the seniors tell the juniors, tell the sophomores, tell the freshmen about how you should go through college. Right, right. As opposed to using that to say, here's what I wanted to go to college for, and here's how I'm going to get that. Yes. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And therefore having much more of an ability to say, you know, I'm not going to major in econ just because everybody's telling me to do that. And I don't actually care about becoming a management consultant which I've never even heard of until a week ago, but suddenly everybody wants to do it. Right. It's funny. My, um, my stepfather is a professor at the University of Chicago, an economics professor, and my son couldn't pass economics to save his life in college. It just, uh, it pains my stepfather to, to see that, but I was actually kind of not. Well, and let me say, I'm not against people majoring economics if they love economics. Certainly, but certainly. Economics hasn't become the most popular major over the last 20, 30 years because suddenly everybody discovered a love for economics. Right, because it's such a fun topic. Yeah. <laughs> right. So one of my favorite um, parts of your book is you said that um, you had people write to you, students, young people write to you, saying, how can I avoid becoming an out-of-touch, entitled little shit? And <laughs> it's... Absolutely one of my favorite parts of your book. And I wish more young people asked this of themselves and, and of others around them. But again, if we're talking about younger students, um, high schoolers who certainly don't have that level of insight yet, what can we as parents do before they have that insight to make sure they don't become out of touch entitled little shits? Well, listen, part of the problem is the residential segregation, and I don't mean racial segregation, residential class segregation uh, and educational class segregation that we've increasingly had in this country. And so kids grow up in this bubble and I don't blame them for it. They don't even know that they're in a bubble. And sometimes efforts to break out of the bubble can be horribly misguided and condescending. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to go and be a white messiah Right. Go to Guatemala and think that you're going to save the world. Absolutely. You need, or I mean, you know, or when when you're in college, you know, students would say, "Well, I would, you know, sit down with a cafeteria worker and ask them about it." It's like, yeah, right. It's it's nauseating and I, yeah, <laughs> um, well intentioned, but just okay. So the only really way to do it is to meet people as equals. Yes. To treat them as equals, to meet them as equals. Mm-hmm. I think working in a grocery store, in a supermarket, uh, uh, in a Denny's, whatever would be a great way to do that. Yeah. I think it's, I think that could be, I, I think in many ways, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to make one blanket suggestion, like have your kid do a service work job, but I, I actually think it's great. And 
I mean, when I was in high school, I, I didn't, but a number of my friends did. It was, I think, much more common because you didn't have the pressure to do all the extracurriculars and all the right. APs and you wanted some spending money. Well, so that's one thing, right? I mean, why would a kid want spending money? Because their parents aren't giving them mm. the spending money that they want. And that incentivize, that would incentivize that. And then, you know, you go out and make your way in the world, even in that, you know, sort of training wheels kind of way where you're coming back at home and you're only working 10 hours a week or whatever it is, but you're beginning to uh, kind of be buffeted by the world and um, in a good way. And you're learning that people who don't go to great colleges or any colleges are often really smart, sometimes in ways that are different from you, sometimes mm -hmm. in ways that are the same. And then you see how other people live and how much less they get, even though they're no less worthy than you. And I think that that addresses the entitlement piece of it. And we've already talked about the out of touch piece of it. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that there are other kinds of experiences other than doing that kind of wage work that would help teach those lessons. I don't know what they are, but um, I assume that there are programs like that that might also, maybe they're, uh, you know, church related uh, or I don't know, the Boy Scouts. It's true. I think it's hard to think outside of wage related. I grew up on the south side of Chicago and I was very active in community service and, you know, volunteering and a number of things. Yeah. But the yeah. lessons I learned there were very different than what I learned as a waitress at Nikki's Diner on the corner of Belmont and Broadway, you know, which I just talked yeah. about it for an introduction for another podcast episode, because here I was, again, it's, it's seeing a whole different group of people as equals and serving them coffee is my job, you know, not volunteer work, not I'm here to help you, but here's my job. I'm going to pour yeah. you coffee and I'm going to learn how to communicate and I'm going to learn all about people outside of my bubble. And that's not the same sort of learning that I had in volunteer work. The volunteer work was still very valuable, but not in the same way. Yeah, I think it's great. And then when you earn your own money, uh, you learn the value of money. Right? Absolutely. The $10 Absolutely. that you make, you're going to spend a lot more carefully than the $10 your mother hands you. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So I was just wondering, this: what was it that inspired you to write this book and write about this topic? My students. Yeah. My students. You know, I mean, years of hearing these stories and hearing from alumni from graduates who were struggling through their 20s. And then I wrote an essay about it in 2008. It was coincidentally as I was leaving academia, but um, I didn't really think too many people would pay attention to the essay. And the people I imagined reading it were fellow academics. And like within a few days, within a few days, I started to hear from students. Huh. And I think within a month or two, it had been read 100,000 times. Wow. And I was, getting, I was getting dozens and dozens and dozens of emails. And then within a few months, I started you know, being invited to speak at schools. So it was, I realized like, wow, this is really a thing. Right. The one thing that wasn't in the original essay that was in the emails that really motivated, I think the thing that most motivated me to turn this into a book was how unhappy the kids were. I actually didn't realize that because even the students who confided in me, like I said, I mean, I knew that they kind of felt lost or frustrated, but the depth, the depth of unhappiness, uh, they concealed even from me. 
Wow. Because one, one of the aspects of being this high achieving kid now is that you don't show how unhappy you are. And that's when I started reading people like Madeline Levine, The Price of Privilege and Denise Clark Pope in school. And I found out that people had already started talking about this. But the emails, like they could be like pages long, like really heartfelt, you know, pouring out your soul and not even like with a happy ending. Right. right. <laughs> Because these were kids who were still in, mostly for, still in college. Right. They were just in it. So can you tell me a little bit about your new book? My, uh, my employee, Kristen, who set up this interview for us, she is raving about how much she wants to read it. So can you tell That's us a so little nice. bit about... Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. Absolutely. So it's, it's called The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. It's another very long subtitle. Yes. <laughs> It's really my attempt to answer the question of how are artists managing to make a living now, given that the internet has taken so much money away from musicians, writers, people who do photography or film, basically anything that can be digitized. Um, I also talk about you know people who do like painting and sculpture and stuff, and that's in some ways a different set of issues, but the vast majority of creative work is now quote unquote content, and content is free, and how mm -hmm. do people manage. And it's different from Excellent Sheep in that I really set out with a very big kind of research program. I ended up interviewing over 140 people, wow. mostly young artists between 25 and 40, just asking them for their stories, just gathering story after story. Also a lot of statistics, a lot of big picture stuff. And um, it's a sobering picture because things are really hard, mm -hmm. but it's also meant to be it's not a how-to in the sense that I say, here are the 10 steps to follow, but I tell a lot of the stories of these 140 people. I, I have uh, two dozen uh, mini profiles, you know, six music, six writing, since six film, and et cetera. And they're all managing somehow. I mean, okay. some of them are doing very well. Some of them are just barely keeping it together, but they're all full-time artists. They're all managing. And so you get a lot of different ideas about how it might work for you. Because one important reality is that unlike, say, a doctor or a lawyer or other employed professional, every artist does it differently. Everybody has their own particular mix of how you put together a living doing what you love to do. So you need, there isn't going to be one solution. You just need a lot of ideas. I also... I have a chapter on art school and mm -hmm. whether you should go and issues about art school. What I would say, I'm not sure I say this explicitly in the book, although I think I imply it, is if you're a young artist and you're wondering whether you should try to do this thing that you know is going to be really hard. Well, actually, the first part of the book, the, the first point of the book is to alert young people to the fact that it is going to be hard. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't want to brag on my blurbs, but Roseanne Cash gave me a blurb and she said it's the most refreshing wake up call for young artists that she's ever read. So wow. it's a wake up call. Uh -huh. But in addition to all this reality that I want people to understand, I also want them to know that they should give themselves a shot. They should give themselves a shot because I think they owe it to themselves because mm -hmm. it could work. Because if they don't, they're going to be really angry and bitter and maybe at their parents, maybe at the <laughs> world who told them, don't do this, but know that it might not work 
And that by the time you get to be 30 or 35 or whatever the age is, you may well need a plan B. Right. And you need to prepare yourself practically and psychologically for the fact that there's a really good chance that it won't work. Mm-hmm. And you might have to do, it may be something that's kind of related or that builds on skills that you have developed as an artist that are very transferable. This is a podcast for young people and their parents. Like right. that would be the message. Like, don't let the world tell you you can't do this, but go in with open eyes. I can think about a few stockings that they're going to get stuffed with this book in the holidays. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. It sounds great. It sounds realistic, yet also encouraging at the same time. I was a literature professor. I've always cared about the arts and Mm -hmm. had great gratitude and esteem for artists. But it was really about their talent and certainly a sense that they worked hard. Doing these interviews, I realized so much more about the character of an artist, the resilience, the willingness to fail and to take risks, so different from the excellent sheep who are my students, Mm -hmm. generosity of spirit, the willingness to do without, the toughness. I have a whole chapter where I have like the life cycle of the artist. It's Mm -hmm. kind of generic biography because I saw these patterns as I did the interviews. Two things about the childhood of artists. They're almost always discouraged, Mm. which is, and often because the school, our school systems can't recognize their talent, Mm -hmm. uh, can't value their talent. It's not even just they can't recognize it, right? Because they're not necessarily the ones who are doing well on the tests because the tests don't test what they're good at. But also, almost everyone I interviewed said that they just knew that they were going to be an artist from a very young age. So I actually believe, I don't know if it's genetic, right? but as a non-artist, I actually believe that it's almost like an innate identity. That's what I was just thinking, an innate, yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to encourage these kids instead of, I mean, even like some kids even end up getting the message that they're dumb because they don't fit the traditional categories of achievement. It's not, I think there's a higher rate of ADD among artists mm-hmm. because their brains just work differently. It's, it's, it's not a liability in what they do. Right. But what they do isn't what you, you know, what you do in a fourth grade classroom. Right. So interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. I look forward to reading your future works too. I, like I said before, I, I just feel like the work you're doing is so important and the messages that you're getting out and really educating people about is so important. And I'm so glad you took the time to, to be here today. I'm happy to have had the chance to talk to your audience about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our special this month provides a 20% discount for the On Your Mark Masterclass. I've been offering the class for a few years now and it always fills to capacity. The cool thing is that it's a class for the students, not the parents, and really helps them take charge of this whole process. It's a six week course and each week has video lessons and assignments to walk them through the process of understanding why they wanna study in Europe, the areas of study that align with their interests, and also teaches them a very understandable system of narrowing the 3000 plus programs down to a short list of three to five programs that match their qualifications, their budget, their academic interest areas, and other preferences. In addition to the content they get each week and can do on their own time, we also have video calls on Sundays, which help them meet the other kids who are pursuing these options, something they might not have in their schools or in their community. And of course, during the calls, they're also able to get answers from me. 
So check out our monthly special page for more information. The link will be in the show notes and use code December special to receive the discounts.